young fella growing up, baseball was uh, very high on my priority list. I lived in a family of two brothers, one brother two years younger than than me, and uh, then a, another brother seven years younger. So when when the third one came along, and it was time for him to start playing Little League, which was about six years of age in those days, there was no such thing as T-ball. At least not where I was. <laughs> Nobody had ever heard of it. So uh, the, the little guy starting out was playing, and we didn't have that many kids either So in our county. So the six-year-olds were playing with the 12-year-olds on teams. And so it's, that's, that's pretty tough on the little guys. So the middle brother and myself often try to help the youngest one when he was coming along learn to hit a baseball. So we take plastic balls or rubber balls or whatever we had and uh, give him a bat, tell him to swing when we threw the ball. Of course, he couldn't hit the ball. Uh, it's pretty tough uh, for a child that age just to swing the bat, an old wooden bat back then, and uh, let alone uh, have the eye-hand coordination to hit the ball. So we we wanted to encourage him, and we we did this quite often. We would uh, stand very close to him, and we would throw the ball very easily underhand to him. But before we did that, we would try to gauge where it was that he usually swung the bat, uh, which was pretty much the same you know same slot every time. So we would try to literally to hit his bat with the ball. And uh, there's two reasons for that. Number one. Uh, if he didn't hit the ball once in a while, he'd get discouraged after, you know, eight or nine swings and misses and walk off. And so, you know, we needed another backyard ball player, you know, you can't hardly play a game with two and, and maybe you might scrape up a neighbor or two here and there as well. So uh, very important for us to encur- keep him encouraged, try to hit his bat as much as possible. It occurred to me in looking at chapter three, the first five verses, Second Thessalonians, that in a very real way, that's what God does for us. Because the Christian life here that we are living, we, it's, it's kind of an illusion in a sense. We think we are doing it. And we think all the, the responsibility and the obligation of everything we should do and, and need to do and all that we should accomplish and all the success that we should achieve is from our effort. And that's a very, as silly as it sounds when you say it, in real life, that's the way we tend to think. And uh, so it's very easy for us to get discouraged at times and not really put forth much effort and do our part. If it were not for the fact that God literally hits our bat from time to time. Now that's necessary because Jesus said this in John chapter 15 and verse 5 to his disciples. He said, for without me, you can do nothing. It seems like we are doing it. If we put forth some effort and we accomplish something that uh, we are pleased with, uh, some matter of obedience, some uh, some uh, means of encouraging or edifying other believers, using our gifts, serving the Lord. But the reality is, if it were not for God's part in it, we wouldn't accomplish anything at all. 
Now, the Holy Spirit, which indwells our souls and has since the day of Pentecost, as far as every believer that's put their faith in Jesus, we have the help and assistance and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to give us God's enablement and power. And if it was not for his help, if it, got, if it was not for God's assistance sovereignly in our lives, then anything and everything that we do in service of the Lord would really fall far short of having any value. No spiritual value. Nothing could be accomplished. But the Lord empowers us and he enables us spiritually. Now, the reason he does is because, well, we saw it last week back in chapter 2 and uh, in verse 13 where we're told that he chose us. He chose us in eternity past. Then in verse 14, it talks about he called us. That's at the moment we came to know Jesus Christ. But we've been chosen. We, we, we are God's people and it goes clear back to eternity past. And then the Holy Spirit worked in our heart and soul and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we became a part of the body of Christ. We became a part of the church and, and we are God's beloved, we were told last week. We are special to Him. And we have value. But our value is not in us. Our value is in our relationship to Him. It's because we are beloved that we have value. It's because then that we are enabled as well that we have value. That we can accomplish anything at all. And so the Lord takes those that he has chosen, those that he has called, and he enables us to be his servants. That we might literally live up to whom we are. Remember, that's the last thing he told us last week in verses 15 and 16. That because we were chosen, because we were called, we ought to live a certain way and do certain things. But we need his empowerment for that to take place. Now, there's two sides of the equation. We've got to swing the bat, and God's got to pitch the ball, so to speak. And when that comes together, then and only then are we able to become successful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was important to communicate to the Thessalonian church because, remember, they... They misunderstood and they thought that somehow Jesus had come back and they had been left behind and they, they pretty down, understandably at that point. And so Paul begins to build them up after correcting their, their misunderstanding doctrinally. Now in, in chapter two at verse 13, Paul begins to build them up emotionally and encourage them spiritually by saying, you, you, God hadn't forgot about you. He chose you. God hadn't forgot about you. He called you. And, and God's not through with you. He's enabled you to serve. Well, they were troubled because they were living in very troubled times and enduring a lot of persecution. And so Paul was literally building them up. And as we come to chapter 3 now, we see that he is dwelling on this idea, this, this reality which they needed to understand that to be a successful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in his good favor, favor and, and live for him and obey him and, and, and serve others, 
by serving him. But that requires that combination of God's assistance and enablement and our obedience and our effort. So, the Lord enables us to be successful servants. Verses 1 through 5, chapter 3. The question is, how does he do it? Because it's important for us to kind of get an idea of what it is that God is doing to enable us to be who we should be as his people in this world. So, first of all, I want you to notice that he orders our circumstances. He orders our circumstances. Now, Paul begins with a request in verse 1. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Now, he's asking the church in Thessalonica to pray for him and uh, those who were with him at that time. Uh, Going about their apostolic ministry, missionary ministry, whatever you want to call it. He says, pray for us. And, And the content of the prayer that he is asking for then is mentioned. He says that... The word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Now, he commends them in the sense that in spite of their persecution and the pressure that they are feeling from the world around them in those days, that they were still giving forth the word of God and being a witness to those that needed to hear the word of God and come to Christ. But he says, just as it's happening there with you, we we come up against opposition too, Paul says. We face persecution too, and, and we have obstacles. So you need to pray for us that when we're going about our missionary work, that the word of God will run swiftly as well. Now, this term run swiftly is a Greek word here that means to be unhindered in movement, unhindered in purpose and accomplishment. And, uh, we would, uh, equate that to what we would call opportunity. So uh, he orders our circumstances by giving us opportunities to do what we're called to do. God wants us to be a witness in this world. He will give us opportunities for that to happen. Even in the worst of circumstances and during the worst of times, he'll provide those opportunities. And that's a matter of prayer. It was a matter of prayer for Paul in those days. It should be a matter of prayer for us as well. Now, several times in the New Testament, God uses this idea of open doors to communicate his sovereign oversight of all of our circumstances, uh, where he kind of swings open a door of opportunity. He does this and he mentions open doors in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. He also does the same over in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. And the one I want you to take a look at quickly, another one is Colossians 4 and verse 3, where he says, Meanwhile, and he's talking to the Colossian church here, of course, Meanwhile, praying also for us, says Paul, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Now, he definitely needed a door to open up there because Paul was imprisoned. So uh, the same concept, Paul's not in prison when he writes to the Thessalonians, but it's the same concept of God intervening and opening up a door of opportunity. I don't know if you remember, um, not all of you will remember for sure, but most of the ones that have been around for a while remember the game show, Let's Make a Deal. I don't know, it may still be on, may, may have reprised the thing, I don't know. But 
when I was growing up, it was one of the few game shows I'd ever stop for a moment and, and watch because they'd have all these folks in the audience that would be dressed in the most outlandish outfits you could think of, and they would bring the weirdest things to offer in trade to who I think was Monty Hall. I might be wrong about that, but uh, Miss Joni and I were conversing about that in the early service. But anyway, trade these, they'd trade these objects of um, little value, uh, to the host for something of value. And then you'd go, they, they would be in a box or they wouldn't be fully revealed and they would have to decide whether they would trade or they wouldn't trade. And, and they would go through the, the audience doing that for a while. And then whoever had done the best uh, during that time would be offered one chance at a grand prize behind three doors. Now, one door might have little, nothing there of any value. Another door might have something of a little bit of value. But there was one door that had the grand prize, you know, everybody, you know, worth thousands of dollars. And they were given an opportunity to choose a door. And so a tester might say, well, uh, I'm going to pick door number two. And they'd open it up and it'd either have the big prize or it wouldn't. That was it. That was their only opportunity. But you see, God gives us multiple opportunities at the big doors. Sometimes we stumble around beating on the wrong door, going the wrong way, and God either doesn't open it or, or He lets us, you know, proceed in the wrong direction for a while, and we realize, man, this is, this is not working, this is not what uh, I need to be doing, God's not blessing, and, uh, you know, it'd be great if God just told us what to do every day, but God, see, God wants us to live by faith. And trust Him. And part of that faith and trust means trusting Him to open the right doors of opportunity. So sometimes we have to back out of a door, try another one. And of course we need to evaluate our gifts and our, our calling, a lot of things here. But if, if, through a, that process, we find open doors that God will allow us to proceed through and He will uh, bless our efforts in those areas. So uh, that's because He's God. He knows where he wants us to go. That whole process requires our faith in him. And we learn as we go through that process. There's two sides to the equation. Now, one other thing Paul adds here in verse 2, he says, in that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Well, obviously, the vast majority of people in this world do not believe in Christ. They do not have faith. And many of them are unreasonable and wicked. Now, the word unreasonable in the Greek means literally uh, perverse. It means improper, out of place, uh, abnormal. Now, you see, the world thinks, well, they're normal and we're the nuts. Okay, we're, we're the abnormal ones. You know, we're the, the fanatic. The Bible says it's just the opposite. We're the only ones that have clear vision. The world, they have a, a, an improper perspective on everything. And that leads then to conflict, and there's times when we come up against the world's philosophy and the world's pressure, and, and heaven forbid, sometimes even the world's persecution, as was happening here in Thessalonica. So uh, they, we need prayer, and uh, we need to pray for each other, that God not only will open us doors of opportunity to serve Him and minister to Him and witness for Him, but that He will protect us and deliver who would hinder us, and it's all part of the equation. So, God orders our circumstances so that we can be successful servants. He does this, first of all, by ordering everything that goes on in our life, being a sovereign God, ordering our circumstances. Then number two, 
He enables our faithfulness. He enables our faithfulness. Look at verse 3. He says, but the Lord is faithful. Now, uh, the little preposition here translated but just means he's kind of changing the subject a little bit. Uh, it's not really reflecting back other than he's just, you know, the subject is changing from prayer and answered prayer to God's actual work in our life. And he begins this way by saying, the Lord is faithful. In other words, he's giving us the foundation first. And he's simply saying, you can depend on the Lord. If the Lord promises something, he's going to deliver. And that's just the way it is. You know, he's dependable. He's always Always been dependable. He all will always be dependable. He's faithful. If his word says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Now I know in, in our sometimes unbelief and, and sometimes in our fear and our discouragement and disappointment, we think God's not working. God's not taking, uh, his, doing his part or taking care of us. But, uh, those are problems we concoct in our own minds. God, the Lord is faithful. Now, since he is faithful, then we know this. He's going to be faithful to us. But the Lord is faithful. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one? Now, those are future tense verbs there. He will establish you and he will guard you. Now, <clears throat> you see, when we worry about tomorrow, we are distrusting God's promise for tomorrow. And when God says he will do something in the future tense, we can count on that going forward. We somehow say, well, praise God, he's blessed me and, and you know, and he's done all these things for me and he, he he's uh, allowed me to have uh, this blessing and this success and, and he has protected me here and all that's grace. But I don't know about tomorrow. I'm so worried about what might happen. The circumstances may change. Things may get difficult. But the scripture says what God has done, what God has been faithful about, he will continue to be faithful in. So he will establish us and he will guard us going forward. Now, to be established literally means here that he makes us stand. Go back to chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, actually, verse 15, where Paul says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. It's the same word here translated will establish. Sometimes English translations will use different English words. I wish they wouldn't because it would be so much easier to connect them. But here, in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, God will establish you. And back in chapter 2, verse 15, he tells us to stand fast or be established. So we have an obligation. It's our obligation to hold fast to the truth that we've been taught. By the way, we, we noted this last week, the word traditions here means simply what you were taught. And he, he specifies that as the word of God, if you read the rest of the verse. The traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our, our epistle or our letter. So uh, everything we've been taught 
truth-wise, all the, the doctrine, all the theology, all the Bible teaches us, we are to hold fast to that truth and not let go of it. Uh, there, are, there are many attempts by Satan and those who work and do his work in this world to pressure us and push us and tempt us and shame us somehow from the world's perspective that we might let go of something that we know to be true or that we might back up from it or forsake it, at least in practice, if nothing else. And Paul says, no, look, you've been chosen. You've been called back in chapter two. So in verse 15, you should live up to whom you are and hold fast to what you've been taught. Now, chapter three, he says, look, God's going to take care of that. God's got a part in that. Yeah, we do our best to hold to the truth, but the truth is without God helping us hold to the truth, we wouldn't. But there's two parts to the equation. We have got to be swinging the bat. God has got to be hitting the bat. So uh, he says he will establish us. He will help us to stand up. It means to take a stand and not back up. It, it means to be firmly rooted where you're at, not give ground, not retreat, not forsake, but to hold steady. And so be established. And then he says this, and guard you. And that's again, future tense, will guard you from the evil one. You see, when we think about standing our ground, when we think about doing what we should, we have an enemy in this world, Satan himself, who opposes us and will do what he can to stop us, to intimidate us, to push us back, to cause us to uh, throw up our hands, get discouraged, and quit on whatever God's called us to do. But Paul says God will be there. If, if you do your part, God's going to make sure that you stand and that you are protected and he will guard you in that sense. Now, the question is, how does God guard us? I want you to turn back to the book of Ephesians or else just listen carefully and watch the verse on screen. But we'll go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13. Therefore, says Paul, this is to the Ephesian church, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand. Now, there's everything we just talked about. Taking a stand, holding fast to the truth, and not letting the, the world or the devil's work and his temptations or whatever push you back or intimidate you or shut you up or discourage you or defeat you. Right there it is. Everything we see here in this verse, Ephesians 6.13, is exactly what we're talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. So, we have a responsibility mentioned here in Ephesians 6.13. Over in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, we just have God's part mentioned. He will guard us. That's great. We need to have that assurance. And we need to hold on to that and realize that. But the other side of the equation is back in Ephesians 6.13. We need to take up the whole armor of God. Now, uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6 uh, in detail, you'll find he began back in verse 10 by saying, uh, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. There's God's enablement, but there's something we have to do here. We've got to be strong in the power of his might. How do we do that? Verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the methods of the devil.
Now that's an aorist tense Greek verb, which means it's a one-time action. It's not an ongoing action. It's not a present tense where you, it's something that goes on every day and every day. He's saying, put on the armor of God, pow, you got it on, don't take it off. If a policeman gets ready to go to work, he puts on uh, some article of body armor, which I'm sure most all of them are doing these days, uh, and they go out to do their job, they don't take it off. They don't say, hey, it's break time, I think I'll take my armor off. You know, no, they're in danger. You have protection because you've already made that choice to protect yourself by putting on the armor. So if we as Christians make our choice to put on God's armor and keep it on, we are going to be protected. We are doing our part, which is put on the armor, and God will do his part, which will help us be protected from the evil man, evil one. And we can't really fully understand the whole of it. Now, what does that mean, put on the whole armor of God? What is the armor? Well, he explains it to us. Uh, In chapter 6 of Ephesians, uh, he says there's the belt of truth. So we've got to accept the truth of God's word, hold fast to what we've been taught, keep it on, keep ourselves wrapped in that that belt of truth. Then we have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That means we have to decide ahead of time we're going to do what's right. That's that's all that means in its simplicity. It means we already made our decision to put our faith in God's word. It means we've already decided to do what God says is right. And then we put on uh, the helmet of salvation. That affects the mind. So we've already made up our mind. We're going to believe what God says about our security and our eternal uh, home and all those things. And uh, we need to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've got to have a shield of faith. We've got to uh, make all these decisions ahead of time. If you wait till the moment you're tempted to decide whether or not you're going to do what's right or wrong, you're probably going to fall into the wrong category. You're going to find yourself vulnerable because you've not put on the armor. You've not already decided what you're going to do before you're ever confronted with the temptation. But if you've already made the decision and the temptation slaps you in the face, it's like, why would I do that? You're much stronger and therein is the Lord's protection because you're literally relying on him at the moment that you're confronted with the temptation. So the Lord enables us to be successful servants. He does so by ordering our circumstances giving us opportunities and protecting us against evil men, then he does also the same thing by enabling our faithfulness. He enables us to stand faithful by guarding us against the work of Satan, the evil one. He's given us the armor. And uh, by the way, going back now to Second uh, Thessalonians 3, There's one more thing he adds to this in verse 4. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. So there's the third aspect of uh, that second point, that he will enable our faithfulness. And that means then, as we have looked at him, he will help us to stand firm. He will help us to be strong against the enemy and the temptation, and he will enable us to be obedient to what he asks. But we have to do our part and be willing. That brings us to number three. 
The third way that he enables us to be successful servants of his is that he refines our character. He refines our character. We find this in verse 5. He says, uh, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now, uh, this is not, not just a, a you know, spiritual, spiritually sounding, you know, conclusion here. This is, this is deep truth. First of all, he says, God will, or may God direct your hearts. So, uh, God is going to, and this is a prayer that God, uh, that Paul was praying for the Thessalonians. So if, if Paul is asking God to do it, it's something God wants to do and, and will do. Now, he says, may God direct your hearts. That's the internal being, your emotional and your uh, immaterial part, which is basically your emotions as well as your, your uh, intellect and all that. Now, there's where we begin to have a problem, if we have a problem at all. We get emotionally disturbed at the circumstances. Instead of trusting God to order our circumstances, we get we get <clears throat> intimidated by the world and by our enemy, and, and we back off from faithfulness and what we're supposed to do, including obedience and all the rest. See, we get in trouble when we get disturbed in our hearts, when we begin to think about all the things that you know are fearful and, and all the things that are worrisome. And so on. So he says, God will direct your hearts. He's going to keep your heart, your soul, your, your mind in the right place so that you're not intimidated, so that you're not, uh, overpowered emotionally. So he will direct your hearts. Now, look at how he does it. Into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now the two words translated into are Greek prepositions, which are, are they're especially, it's the same word there. It's a special preposition that means not just in the sphere of something, but in this case, unto the final conclusion of something. The final goal. So the first thing that that he wants us to be growing toward and striving toward and, 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 and achieving is a greater and greater love for God. And the more that we love God, the more that we're going to obey the word. And the more that we love God, the more that we are going to be standing fast and holding to that which we've been taught. And the more that we love God, the more motivated we're going to be to resist temptation and put on the armor of God and do all those things which we should do. So he says, into the love of, when he says love of God, there in your text, it means the love you have for God. We love him because he first loved us. And because he first loved us, we love him. That's our vertical love. But because we love him, we can't love God unless we love our fellow man. That's the horizontal aspect of love. Love is a verb. Love is a responsibility. We, we, Satan has done such a good job at confusing the minds of men in this day and age 
to, 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 to somehow we think that love is only an emotion. Now, it includes our emotions, but it also includes our will. And without the will, it, it, the emotions have no anchor and they have no guide. But we have a responsibility to love. It's like your guy, you know, comes in for counseling and they say, well, what's wrong? Well, me and my wife are having problems. What's wrong? He said, well, I just don't love my wife anymore. Well, then start loving your wife. You know, it's a responsibility. It's not an emotion. It's not what you're feeling at the moment, which may be the result of all sorts of conflicts or whatever, but do what you're supposed to do. But it's amazing when you do what you're supposed to do, how your emotions get in line. Now, he refines our character in this matter of a growing, growing love for God. On a day-to-day basis, it should be increasing. But then he adds this. He says, not only into the love of God, but also into the patience of Christ. Now, the word translated patience is a word which means literally endurance. It means suffering uh, in the sense that you have a, a... a terrible load or a terrible burden you're dealing with, but you will not stop doing what you're supposed to do because it's difficult to continue. I'm not going to stop serving God just because I've got problems or trials or difficulties. God actually uses our trials to teach us endurance because endurance is what he wants from us. We need to have the patience here or literally the endurance of Christ. Now, that means the same endurance that Christ had when he died on that cross for you and me. That is infinite, infinite endurance. Infinite ability to withstand the worst. And it all goes back to the basis of love. So, endurance. You know, it's amazing. We all... We have problems. We have within our church at any one time. There's a, there's a group of people that have health problems, sometimes serious, and they need prayer. And, and we, we, we do a good job. We're faithful praying for those folks. We care about them, and, and we should. But how often do we pray that somebody who has problems will endure, be patient? See, that's an even bigger issue. That's, that's the issue God is even more concerned about than our health. Well, he'll, he'll sacrifice our health to teach us endurance. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a, we would never have a health problem, right? So think about that. Include in your prayer life. When you know someone's having problems, pray that God's grace will, will keep them strong in their faith and, and faithful in their service. I don't know. I wish, I wish I had a hundred dollar bill for every time in the last 40 years. Someone's told me, well, I, you know, I would do this, but I've got this problem. And I'm thinking, you know, I, on the other hand, I've seen people that come through the door in a wheelchair or on crutches too. And I've seen people when some people endure great difficulties and still faithfully serve God. We need to learn, to endure, and we need to be progressing toward the type of endurance that Jesus had for us when he died on that cross. 
I like what Paul Harvey said once a long time ago. He said, someday I hope to enjoy enough of what the world calls success so that if anybody asks me, what's the secret of it? I will say this, I get up when I fall down. See, that's, that's really a profound statement. The problem is, you and I don't want to fall down. I, I will confess, the older I get, the more I, I, I spend a lot of wasted time thinking about things that have happened and ways in which I feel like I have failed in some way. But that's human thinking. And I, it's, it's hard for any of us to separate this in our minds. But real success is our character, not our accomplishments. Real biblical success, a biblical servant success is really in their character more than their accomplishments. And the problem is, the less we accomplish what we think we should, the more we are disappointed, the more we are discouraged, the less character we have. Is that not right? So we need to get our thinking straightened out. I, do, I need to get my thinking straightened out. To be a successful servant, he orders our circumstances. He enables our faithfulness. He refines our character. When Babe Ruth retired from baseball in 1935, he retired with what then was the record for the most home runs over a lifetime in Major League Baseball, 714 home runs. Now, that was eclipsed in the early 60s by Roger Maris, but he had to play a few more games to do it. And then eventually... Uh, passed again later on in a different era. But for nearly 30 years, Babe Ruth's lifetime home run record looked to be uh, an insurmountable record. But he also had another record for a long time as well. And when he retired, it was a Major League Baseball record, and that was for the number of strikeouts. Over 1,300 of them. One time a reporter asked Babe Ruth, he said, did you ever become discouraged by your many strikeouts? Ruth replied, and he was not a spiritual giant. He wasn't even a believer as far as I know. But it's interesting how his philosophy is so much the kind of philosophy we need to apply. The reporter said, well, do you ever get discouraged by your, all these strikeouts? He said, I go up there and I swing. I just keep on swinging and I keep on swinging. And, and every strikeout brings me closer to my next home run. On another occasion, he said this. He said, I have many faults, but giving up isn't one of them. You see, we miss the ball five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times and we lay the bat down. 
but it's on that 11th pitch maybe that God's going to use us in a great and mighty way and bless us in ways we cannot imagine. God never fails. We fail Him. If we keep swinging, we will achieve the success we need to have as His servants. And we may have to change our definition. We have to change our outlook. We have to refocus on something different. When we understand what success really is, Christ-likeness, character, But we have to stay in the game. We cannot let discouragement. We cannot let opposition. We cannot let circumstances. We cannot let fear stop us. We have God's help all along the way.